Irish through the long doors and past the garden. Up past customers and up to the counters. And ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. This is a robbery of a very high-powered explosive. Give me all your rivals. Give me all your money. Give me all your rivals. Give me all your money.
jokingly told her, honey, I forgot to duck. Live today, it's Monday, April 12th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in, broadcasting a few days um, after uh, I'd planned to, to do the show. So I'm uh, excited to be here with you all. Thanks so much for tuning in, broadcasting from Mutiny Radio. We are on 
Ramatush Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to weeklyrev.org and click on our land acknowledgement tab. We've got a lot of links there, places to donate, action items to take, including helping to preserve the West Berkeley Shell Mound site, as well as a thread of native news outlets to follow and maps of the lands that you are living on. So please do check that out. All right, my name's Roman. I'll be sharing some news for more independent outlets today, playing some music. And I saw this amazing documentary last night that I highly recommend, uh, Vojnarovic, about the artist, uh, David Vojnarovic. And it's uh, so good. The full title is uh, the last name, which I will spell out, which is W-O-J-N-A-R-O-W-I-C-Z. And it's uh, Vojnarovic, um, fuck you faggot fucker, is the complete name. And I highly recommend it, and just uh, a look into the artist and his work in New York in the 1980s, and homophobia, and so much of the work he created, and like classism, and the the art scene, and how uh, the the larger galleries were discriminatory in terms of what art they would present, and then also just religious figures and politicians, and how fucking idiotic and brainless and spineless they were in terms of not even allowing artists to live, and then also with New York real estate. It just brought up a lot, and also as many um, just really incredible documentaries do, just you, in some ways, even though they're talking about like the 70s and 80s, uh, 1970s and 1980s, how so little has changed in a lot of ways, and how there's still the lack of funding for the arts, and still people in positions of power who cause great harm. And sometimes their children pop up and work for the Trump administration, which was one sneak peek of the documentary and just how, and remind me of the lady in the Dale, which is another great documentary to check out. It's on HBO and um, just how awful people have awful children. That was the, uh, the summary of that and how the rest of us have to deal with that nonsense. So my point being is that uh, David Wojnarowicz was in this band called three teens kill four that I hadn't heard of. So I'm playing music from, their album called No Motive. In the beginning of the second track, here we hear they had news clips of when Reagan was shot. And the name of that song is called Tell Me Something Good. So be going over some news stories as per usual here. And hopefully um, sharing uplifting pieces of information as well as other news items that might not make it around. So this comes from a source called enoughisenough14.org, and this came out on April 8th, uh, second uprising in two months at St. Louis Jail, and they have a photo here that I'll share on the website with uh, folks who are incarcerated on the inside, and they have a giant sign that says, help us, that you can see from the outside of the, j- of the prison, and the caption, uh, or I'll start reading here, St. Louis, Missouri, prison rebels broke windows, set a fire, and threw chairs and other items out of a third floor window during a second significant uprising in two months at a downtown St. Louis jail. Third floor windows were destroyed. Black charring from the fires lined the areas around the building. During the uprising, up to 75 comrades on the ground shouted support for the prison rebels. The same jail was the site of a similar uprising on February 6th. Two smaller skirmishes also have occurred since December. The latest uprising began just before 9 p.m. Sunday, and soon prison rebels were breaking windows and tossing items to the ground below. 
Then, around 11 p.m., prison rebels broke windows on the other side of the jail and began throwing objects again. Some imprisoned people were heard yelling demands for court dates. Proceedings have been delayed, supposedly due to the coronavirus pandemic. However, prison pigs regularly break COVID-19 protocols inside the jail, spreading the virus to imprisoned people who already deal with poor conditions inside the jail. The same concerns were at the heart of the February uprising, which involved more than 100 prison rebels and sent a prison pig to the hospital. In the face of the barbarity of the white supremacist prison enslavement system, these imprisoned comrades are courageously fighting back against oppression in St. Louis. So there is lots of information on the site. Again, you can go check it out at enoughisenough14.org. Next up, we'll... Uh, oh, I'm sighing already. And we're 14 minutes into the show. Going to take a deep breath. I was going through... Uh, what I do to prepare for the show ahead of time is I go through articles I find during the week, and I create links to them. And then when I come in the studio, I start clicking on the links. And I'm like, ooh, oh, that's... Oh, I can't start with... Oh, wow, that's rough. Ooh, yikes. Oh, this is uplifting. Okay. Hmm. So I do want to get to this one here because... Oh, sigh. That doesn't really... leave much uh, description. But there were a lot of folks who were like, oh, as soon as we have a Democrat in the White House, everything's going to get better. And um, dot, dot, dot. Here is a uh, story from The Intercept. And this is... Uh, we have video footage as well of kids getting off a plane. And the full story is from The Intercept, so I will begin to read it. It's a long article, so we'll see what I can get to here. And if folks would like to... Check out the rest of it, um, please do. Uh, asylum seekers expelled by Biden administration say they feel deceived. Central American families arrived in Mexico's Cuidad Juarez disoriented and disconsolate. Many didn't realize they were being expelled from the U.S. And this came out on March 24th, 2021, written by Debbie Nathan. Bienvenidos a Miami, the woman in the black jacket mouthed bitterly. Welcome to Miami. An official said this mockingly to her and her fellow passengers, she recalled, all Central American parents with young children, as the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement plane descended. Boo. And I do have to say that there is something positive that at least has happened in that I went out yesterday and I was just walking around the city and just feeling like, oh, where's the soul? Where are the art? Where's the love? And then on my way home, I did bike by the uh, ice building here and it's still covered in graffiti, which is awesome. So that's something positive, and I'll share some photos. And that was done like a while ago, but still boarded up. And again, it's I'd rather have people be free and ice abolished. And in the meantime, I'm grateful that this building has been defaced and still is. So there we go. Continuing on with this article. They had departed from Brownsville, Texas, but they knew they weren't in Miami, she said. Instead of a coastal city, they saw mountainous terrain. Three hours later, huddled on a dirty, noisy street by a bridge, most still seemed disoriented. Some thought they were in the United States. What's it called here, a skinny man with a four-year-old asked me. Cuidad Juarez, I said, the state of Chihuahua, Mexico. Around us, toddlers wailed, other children stared, and mothers quietly wept. The skinny man summed things up. They'd each been ignado by the government, deceived, he said. His verb choice might have seemed strong, but it wasn't just migrants who were misled. So were Americans just north of the border. 
In February, just after Joe Biden took office, Border Patrol agents on the southwest border encountered about 19,000 people traveling in families with children. Of those, 41% were immediately returned to Mexico, including to dangerous border cities. They were returned under Title 42, a health law activated in March 2020 by the Trump administration, nominally to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. The unprecedented application of Title 42 against asylum seekers was seen by many public health experts and human rights organizations as having nothing to do with public health and everything to do with anti-Latinx racism. Immigrant rights proponents hoped that Biden would immediately retire the policy. He didn't. Still, most people traveling in families were initially let in. They were held for a few days by Border Patrol and then often taken to church-affiliated shelters where they could call family members already in the U.S. From there, they went to bus stations and airports, especially in the far south Texas cities like McAllen and Brownsville. They got tickets and started their trips into America. Not surprisingly, word spread in Central America, which has been racked by hurricanes, in addition to coping with poverty and violence, that parents with children could turn themselves into officials at the U.S. border and have a decent chance of acceptance into the asylum process. More families started coming. In March, the Biden administration started to backpedal. Border patrol stations were too crowded with families, the government said. Shelters in South Texas were overwhelmed. On March 8th, an overflow plan was announced. Beginning that day, families seeking asylum would be flown west to El Paso, where they would be taken in by Annunciation House, a venerable Catholic organization with multiple shelters that has long offered respite to refugees. The group issued a call for El Pasoans to volunteer at A House, as the shelter network is affectionately known. The city felt proud that it could do its humanitarian bit for the people doing what they have a right to do under international law, seek asylum. Meanwhile, the new head of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, repeatedly announced to would-be migrants that they should stay away. The border is closed, he said. Ugh. I got vaccinated by late fe- and by late February was primed for a more normal life. For me, normal means once again, and this is, of course, in the author's voice, uh, visiting El Paso's sister city in Mexico, Cuidad Juarez. On March 15th, I walked south across the International Bridge to take a stroll downtown. I went to haunts I hadn't visited since before the pandemic. The Sing Song outdoor fruit market, the cheese vendor who slices tasting samples, the plaza where two old men in zoot suits danced to a boombox blaring Perez Prado. It was a glorious day until I walked back over the bridge. There I saw two Border Patrol agents hurting dozens of young adults stumbling disconsolately disconsolately uh, toward Mexico, toddlers clunking from their chests. Over the next few days, journalists started reporting that some families flying from Brownsville to El Paso were subsequently being expelled. But, they said, Annunciation House had also received families from the airplanes. On March 16th, I went to a remote part of the airport and peered through holes in a burlap-covered fence to watch a plane land. A Reuters photographer was there, and we saw mothers and tiny children disembark before the cops shoot us away. The photographer went to Juarez. Two hours later, he saw the same families. Local and national press visited Juarez, but the media continued to report that a fraction of families, no one said how many, were still being processed into the United States. On Sunday, uh, the author uh, learned a plane was coming in from Brownsville at noon, so two hours later, I again walked south on the bridge, and that's when I saw the weeping people who had been told they were landing in Miami. A group of Mexican government workers usually comes to offer the families help. 
They provide information about shelters, uh, though Mexican officials have told the press that capacity has been overwhelmed and a gymnasium is being refurbished to make more space. A woman in the black jacket, as well as others who'd been on the plane, told me they'd feared Mexican shelters because they might be funnels for deportation back to Central America. The streets are dangerous, the government officials warned. She said she'd had no idea how to get off of the street. I asked them how many families were still being processed in El Paso. They had no idea. They said they had no idea. No one, said some of the expelled people. We didn't see anyone uh, chosen to stay in El Paso. They all got sent over the bridge. Back in El Paso, the uh, author, and I'm going to just look up the person's name again so I can just include this while I'm reading. And this is, again, uh, Debbie Nathan. So I will be referring to the first person here as Debbie Nathan as I continue reading. Oh, okay. Back in El Paso, Debbie Nathan asked around, and Debbie uh, heard from an activist that when the flights first started coming from Brownsville, some passengers were immediately removed to Juarez, while some were released to Annunciation House. But lately, uh, Debbie Nathan was told every single family was immediately being expelled. Uh, Debbie asked the Border Patrol to confirm this, and El Paso Sector Chief Gloria Chavez responded by email, Our priority is to process them and expel them into Mexico under Title 42. She wrote of the families being sent to El Paso from the South Texas Rio Grande Valley region. While the agency had been working with local officials and NGOs to house families in El Paso, she explained, as of a little over a week ago, the government of Mexico has been able to receive all family units from RGV under Title 42, therefore limiting the amount of individuals released to Annunciation House. El Paso's respite facilities have their beds, yet asylum seekers are being sent back to Mexico. Across the bridge, meanwhile, the good people of El Paso, the local officials and volunteers ready to welcome the families, can do nothing to help. Ugh, that's the uh, end of the article. So that fucking sucks. Uh, you can find it, again, on The Intercept. And the uh, writer's name is Debbie Nathan, and I will be providing a link on our page, weeklyrev.org. Going to take a deep breath, going to play some more music, and we'll be back in a bit.
side, there's all these guys standing around. Tell me, get against the wall, legs spread, palms flat. And I am the young man, I am the young I am the young man who's beaten on the kids between clubs. Let's go some time for you to answer any question. They didn't answer any question. I don't understand what the hell's going on. And I am the young man who's taken to another room. Famous to call it lounger. Concrete ceilings, cinder black walls, behind the walls, behind the walls, I can hear the sound of these screams, sound of people screaming, sound of these screams, a child screaming, a woman screaming, I know this is my family, my mother, my brother, my sister, my father, they're screaming. Photographs. What were you doing working in factories? What workers did you speak to? What political organizations you belong to? What political affiliations do you have?
Uh, this was a walkout that happened at Amazon in Gage Park in Chicago, and it's about uh, a little over 11 minutes, so just hear a little bit of this, and we'll also post a link. And this happened, let me just, um, let's see, some difficulties here. Um, I'll start playing the clip, and then I will share the date when I find that. Walk it out! That's what it's about! 
April 7th. And there's also solidarity funds that folks can donate, and I'll post a link as well. You can find it at chuff.org. And let's see if there's any speakers here. That's what it's So you can find that clip over on their uh, Twitter page, Amazonians United Chicagoland. And we'll share a link there. <sighs> yeah, late in the day, feeling kind of <sighs> very low energy. Did want to share, there's an interview that we'll post a link to, and this is from calmatters.org. And I'm just going to read the first uh, portion of this. Across California, 44,241 people are being held in a county jail without being convicted or sentenced for a crime. That's three quarters of all inmates. At least 1,317 people have been waiting, waiting in county jails for more than three years. For 332 of them, it's been longer than five years. In 32 counties that gave us detailed data, 5,796 people have been jailed longer than a year without being convicted or sentenced. In Los Angeles County, which has the state's largest jail population, 1,350 unsentenced people have been behind bars for longer than a year. About 180 have been jailed longer than three years. In Sacramento County, 102 of about 2,800 unsentenced inmates have been locked up longer than three years, including 12 people in jail longer than five years. <sighs> Most detainees waiting for justice are people of color. For example, black people make up roughly 5% of the population of San Francisco, but account for 50% of the 220 inmates jailed for a year or Criminal cases in California drag on for a variety of reasons, and the pandemic has triggered even longer delays. County had 3,000 
50 open felony cases in February compared to 2,518 the year before. San Mateo County had 2,616 in December compared to 1,837 the year before. And they have a chart here which shows these numbers. The delays have been excruciating, not only for the defendants, but for the victims of crimes. Thousands of people are still waiting for justice. And this is an article written by Robert Lewis, and they also have the article in Spanish as well. And it's a very um, detailed and long article that I will share a link to. I don't feel like I can give it all my best, so I'll just provide a link to it. But yeah, calmatters.org has much more information, so I recommend that folks uh, check that out. All right, also wanted to share that on Saturday, April 3rd, was the National Day for the Haitian Women's Movement. Women's organizations sponsored a mass demonstration in Port-au-Prince, organized to oppose Haitian dictator Jovenel Moïse, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, and strengthen the struggle against patriarchy. So I'll just play, it's like a 44-second clip, so I'll just share the audio uh, with you here. <laughs> Let's see. Oh my. Gonna take a deep breath here. Keep going. Uh, so April 11th. Wait, that was yesterday. Okay, so I will uh, not read that. However, this all is in part of um, trying to ensure that uh, CCSF can continue to provide uh, all the great classes for folks. So there is, uh, if you follow the hashtag, hashtag save CCSF or hashtag CCSF, you'll find more information. It's been an ongoing um, push just to um, keep a city college open and free. And there've been a lot of, you know, threats to have cuts and layoffs and everything, which is just awful. And they have a quote here from the rally that happened on the 11th. It's fiscally irresponsible to spend six times as much money to keep someone in jail as to educate them. And also going to see here. And let's see. It's also a uh, Twitter um group you can follow um we've had on the show before as a guest um if you go to at ccsf student says uh they've been sharing a lot of really helpful important information and i'm gonna go look on their website right now and see what's upcoming and if you go to linktr.ee forward slash ccsf student coalition you can read what's happening at ccsf and the call for proposals you can register for classes meet with elected leaders and advocate for higher education. 
Uh, you can also join the CCSF Student Coalition. And I uh, can save the Philippines Department list of actions, sign their petition, submit testimonies to AFT 2121. Lots of more action items that folks can take. So I know at times it's easy to feel like, oh gosh, things are fucked up. I feel like that pretty much every day, most parts of the day. And then there are also ways to show up. And I know when I do something, whether it's even like signing a petition or going to a rally or just sharing information or having conversations or donating if I'm able, there's, if I do one little thing, uh, it helps me feel better. And I know it's, you know, up against uh, capitalism, which is destroying all of us. And also there are so many folks who are organizing and finding ways to ensure that we all can hopefully live this life with more dignity, with more education, and uh, more support. So that's what we try to do here, and we'll provide a link to that as well on the website. Again, weeklyrev.org, and there'll be a, a post up with, that, with the April 12th date for this information. Okay, I'm going to rest my breath a little bit, play some more music. It's, uh, there's a lot here. This song is called Circumscript, and I haven't heard um, many of these songs before, so I'm listening for the first time.
Listen, I'm going to get a fashion from the paper mache and human hair. On top of the pump, covered it with a black. Literally, I'm running more time about this hiding spot. I've been here with three fences, two legal barbed wire, one electrified. Hours later, he found himself on the hotel on Main Street, standing before a fluorescent lit when his disappearance was discovered in all states alone and was issued by authorities, some believed he was on his way down to Venezuela, others thought he was on his way to Soviet Russia, and still others thought he was hiding in the mountains of the Northwest. He occasionally called his family long distance.
better, the tighter, the sweater, the bars depend on us. We must, we must, we must increase our bust. The bigger, the better, the tighter, the sweater, the bars depend on us. song pretty much has everything uh being shaking a uh, quote from a judy bloom book um talking about lies uh that's pretty great that was called hut slash bean song pretty awesome got three more songs from them coming up did want to share some more news articles if you're not depressed enough yet just you wait uh can i dare you to be more depressed i don't want anyone to be i mean you know feel how you feel it's not a judgment it's more just a Uh, it's a natural reaction to how things are. Did want to share uh, just a link to an article from SFGate, the Bay Area town that drove out its Chinese residents for nearly 100 years. And that's by Katie Dowd, and it came out on April 7th. And this is talking about Antioch. Um, uh, in the 1800s, Antioch's Chinatown consisted of homes and stores on both sides of 1st and 2nd Streets from Q to I streets, as highlighted on red in the map, and they have a map above in this article. Uh, before, wow, I didn't know any of this. Before the white residents of Antioch burned down Chinatown in 1876, they banned Chinese people from walking the city streets after sunset. In order to get from their jobs to their homes each evening, the Chinese residents built a series of tunnels connecting the business district to where I Street meet the waterfront. There, a small Chinatown and a cluster of houseboats made up the immigrant settlement. If they ever felt safe there, it was fleeting. Above the tunnels and outside their doors, the threat of violence was simmering. The citizens of Antioch have been endeavoring to rid themselves of the Chinese for some time, said the Sacramento Bee. The Sacramento Bee wrote in the spring of 1876. And they have a photo here. And the caption says, when the Palace Hotel was demolished in 1926, workers discovered secret tunnels underground used by Chinese residents to commute after sunset, according to an 18... Is that 51 or 61? Let's see. 
Um, let me just make sure I'm sharing the correct year. 1851. Uh, okay. 51 statute, Chinese residents were not allowed to be on the street after dark. Thing uh, for came April 29th, 1876. According to newspaper reports, a doctor in Antioch made public the knowledge that a handful of young men he treated showed signs of venereal disease. Venereal disease. The doctor pointed the finger at Chinese sex workers. He he knew what he was doing. Outrage ripped through the town. A mob quickly formed. Where have we heard about this before in U.S. history? <sighs> Some urged mur murdering the women, but better counsels prevailed. Uh, in quotation marks, a wire report recounted. Instead, the swarm of four dozen angry white men went door to door in Chinatown, telling the occupants they had until 3 p.m. to leave town. No exceptions. Young, old, men, women, healthy and deathly ill had just hours to pack up and depart. It must have been an eerie night, a crowd of frightened Chinese immigrants, their belongings knotted up into kerchiefs, standing silently in line at the dock, awaiting ferries to San Francisco and Stockton. The lightning of Caucasian wrath upon Mongolia has struck, the Mercury News wrote, but the spark it ignited had only just started to burn. The decades following, in the decades following the gold rush, no immigrant group was as loathed as the Chinese. That hatred became endemic to California, planted and nourished by politicians, city leaders, and the media. Their xenophobic talking points will sound familiar today. Outrage over quote-unquote low-skill laborers taking jobs from white people, complaints that uh, Chinese people failed to integrate into American society, while simultaneously barring them from schools, social gathering places, and even public streets, and accusations of quote-unquote an invasion. Anti-Chinese sentiment is... Ugh. <laughs> oh, sorry. Jesus. I really Can you put on a mask? Then... Yeah. Oh, God damn. Ugh. Jesus. <sighs> yeah. Can you put on a mask and get out of here, please? Can you please get out of here? Can you put on your fucking mask? Jesus fucking Christ. That's why I like doing the show on my own. All right. So I'm not going to read what the Los Angeles Herald uh, was sharing, their nonsense. Um, and you know what? I'm going to take a fucking break. I'm going to play some music, and I'm probably just going to get the fuck out of here because I'm just not up for this right now. And uh, here's some more music. We're not essential labor. 
can rock the crystal glass, you can rock the paper bags, you can bring guns to your head, you can turn that guilty party.
club at 4 a.m. We're walking down the street. It's a quiet night. This car crane around the corner burst into flames. Things have been so easy up till then.
and staying up all night and falling asleep and waking up making love again. Hey there, welcome back. I've taken a few breaths. I do want to finish reading this uh, article because I think it's super important. And so again, this is from the SF Gate about the history of uh, Antioch, uh, California. I am not quoting the Los Angeles Herald because they had some fucking nonsense. Uh, by the 1870s, California had moved from local ordinances like Antioch's street ban to creating entire anti-Chinese political parties. San Franciscan Dennis Kearney, himself an immigrant from Ireland, formed the Workingmen's Party of California. Its stated goal was to eradicate Chinese workers, and its infamous slogan was, the Chinese must go. The state constitution ratified in 1879 had only one article that addressed a racial or ethnic group entitled Chinese, it banned corporations from hiring quote-unquote Chinese or Mongolian people and specified no Chinese shall be employed on any state, county, municipal, or other public work except in punishment for crime. Three years later, the Federal Chinese Exclusion Act would bar all Chinese laborers from immigrating altogether. It was in this hateful, volatile atmosphere that, wa that white Californians began setting arson fires in Chinatowns. It was easy to burn down entire settlements because laws often restricted what parts of town they could live in, clustering everyone in the same few blocks. The day after Antioch's Chinatown was emptied, it was physically eradicated. As churchgoers left Sunday services, rumors began to spread that some Chinese residents had returned home. No one now living can reveal what exactly happened next, but by 8 p.m., someone had set Chinatown on fire. A crowd of onlookers and the local fire brigade looked on as flames engulfed homes and buildings. Very little was done to stay the progress of the fire, uh, Wire Report noted, although crews must have gone into action at some point to prevent white homes and businesses from being damaged. The Caucasian torch, wrote the bee, lighted the way of... I'm not even going to finish... Uh, their quote, ugh. By morning, all but two Chinatown's uh, buildings were erased. The news was met with enthusiasm throughout the state. The actions of the citizens of this place will, without doubt, meet with the hearty approval of every man, woman, and child on the Pacific Coast. The Chronicle ew, cheered. Ew, ew, ew. Fuck the Chronicle. Ugh. Fuck the Chronicle. I was just... Side note, I was like writing about this the other day of how the San Francisco Chronicle has always just been fucking, it's been so fucking awful. Um, I know awful is not a very specific word, but just fucking racist and discriminatory. A few newspapers cautioned that legislation, not arson, was the preferred way to uh, eliminate Chinese people from their communities. The only prominent voice against the Antioch violence was... San Francisco's famed Emperor Norton, although his grievance was also colored by economic concerns. Ugh. Um, yeah. And they have a lot more information here. Um, scrolling down in the article, the events of 1876 had a century of ramifications for the demographics of Antioch. Although some Chinese people did eventually return to do business in the area, almost none felt safe permanently settling there again. Nearly 100 years later, the 1960 census recorded a little over 17,000 people living in the town. 99.6% were white, 
just 12 residents were Chinese. That finally began to change, however, in the 80s and 90s as Antioch's population boomed. The Contra Costa County town, ideal for commuters who couldn't afford San Francisco real estate prices, grew and changed. 62,000 people lived there in 1990 and 3,043 identified as AAPI. The 2010 census showed white people had become the minority for the first time. 10% of the population is Asian American. Below the water... Below the waterfront part of town, some of the tunnels were occasionally resurfaced by construction work. They were remarkably sturdy, with entrances framed in brick. During pro Prohibition, they were supposedly used by rum runners. They were built, it seems, for centuries of use. Wow. So this full article um, you can find at SFGate was written by Katie Dowd on April 7th. And again, we'll post a link to that on our website. I also did want to share a couple other headlines that we'll post links to. I'm not up for reading the whole thing right now. And yeah, I am really fucking, I've been doing the show for a long time and I care a lot about it and it means a lot to me. And it's, um, you know, clearly um, emotional and intense things that we're talking about here. And uh, just feels you know, it's, uh, again, it's like the very least I can do. And also sometimes it feels like fucking uphill, even just sharing uh, what other people have written. So this is an article from the Innocence Project. New Mexico governor signs historic legislation to end qualified immunity. Mexico becomes the second state in the nation to send, to end qualified immunity. This is written by their staff. I'll just read the first paragraph here. Today, New Mexico became the second state in the nation to abolish qualified immunity when governor, Lujan Grisham signed the New Mexico Civil Rights Act into law. In addition to eliminating qualified immunity, this historic legislation will allow New Mexicans, including the wrongfully convicted, to discover damages from the government when their constitutional rights are violated, while also providing incentives for government employees to respect and uphold constitutional rights. And uh, there's some more there. Again, we'll post a link, weeklyrev.org. I also wanted to share some upcoming events that folks can check out. April 23rd at 10 a.m. Pacific time, hosted by TNS and Real Food Media, Dr. Rupa Maria and Ade Romero Briones in conversation with Anna Lape. Uh, the series called Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis. Uh, this is called Stolen Land, the Struggle for Rematriation, brings uh, Dr. Rupa Maria and Ade Romero Briones of FND. I-303 together to share strategies toward a vision that protects and uplifts native agroecological traditions with host uh, Anna Lape. Uh, they have a link to register. We'll share a link on our site. I'll do that when I get home. And also uh, Sean Dorsey, who's an incredible dancer and choreographer, has a new show that's up. And I wanted to share how folks can check out at home uh, what that is about and how to access that. So let me bring it up here. And I do believe there's a oh, video of it. And this is called the, the Sean Dorsey Dance at Home season, April 16th to April 18th, 2021. Tickets are free and registration is required. We'll provide a link as well. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash SDD 2021 at home slash 2021 at home, SD, SDD 2021 at home. Join us for our first look at Sean Dorsey Dance's new multi-year project, The Lost Art of Dreaming, explores and creates expansive futures for our communities. And there's a, a link here that is, uh, it says, Ambi oops, I'm gonna just read the caption here. 
so I can ah it keeps on going before I can pause it. Okay, ambient electronic music by Anomi Bell. Anomi Bell. So it'll be online and closed caption. Again, this is April 16th to the 18th. You can go to www.seandorseydance.com for more information. And yeah. Okay, so that is it for real. Um, okay, it's been about an hour and a half. I think I'm good to go. We'll provide links at weeklyrev.org. If you'd like, please donate to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev. And you can find more information on our website. Um, I'll play uh, play some music here before we go. And uh, hope to see you all next week. Um, I did buy a new Pete... Well, it's not new. It's from the 60s. But it's new for me, a Pete Seeger record. And there's a couple of songs on it. One's called Hobo's Lullaby, which has some great lyrics in it. Another one is Last Train to Nuremberg. So I'm feeling like that one right now. And we'll be back next week. Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg All on board Do I see Lieutenant Calais? Do I see Captain Medina? Do I see General Coster and all his crew? Do I see President Nixon? Do I see both houses of Congress? Do I see the voters? Me and you Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg All on board Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg All on board Who held the rifle? Who gave the order? Planned the campaign to lay waste the land Who manufactured the bullet Who paid the taxes Tell me is this blood upon my hand Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg All on board Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg Last train to Nuremberg If 500,000 mothers went to Washington Saying bring all our boys home without delay Would the man they came to see say he was too busy? 
would he say he had to watch the football game? Last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, on board, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, last train to Nuremberg, on board. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, see 